Please turn in your Bibles with me to our text this morning, which comes from uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians. We're looking at chapter 5 and verses 7 to 15 this morning. Galatians chapter 5, verses 7 to 15. Galatians chapter 5, verses 7 to 15. Please then hear with me the reading of God's Word. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from Him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Thus far is the reading of God's Word. If I had to, to guess, understanding man's heart, uh, being one myself, I would say that if we as human beings had a choice, uh, that if God in the beginning asked man, or even now asked us for our input, oh man, what, what would you like me to, to liken the Christian life to be? We would say something light and easy. Right? We would say, God, we want you to liken the Christian life to something like taking a nap. Or walking on the beach. Or strolling in the park. Why? Well, because those things elicit feelings of comfort and happiness and joy and pleasure and peacefulness and, and coziness and cheer. All things that I think naturally man desires. I mean, who would say to the Lord, Lord, Whatever you like in the Christian life to, may it be something difficult, may it be something hard, may it be something challenging, something that causes uh, pain and, and heartache and, and anguish. Please, Lord, give me a, a thorn in my side and, and cause me to, to fight every day through constant battles. I mean, who here wouldn't prefer that the Lord send you off to vacation than send you off to war? But thankfully, though, the all-wise God did not need nor want to consult man in this decision. Right? Thankfully, He didn't. Because He who created all things right, knows what is best and He does what He pleases. And so, God has done what is best. And, and the, the life that the Christian has today is what is best. Right? The Christian life that, that we would choose, one that is light and one that is easy, would really be a terrible life for the Christian because it would keep us distant from God. You say, well, why do you say that? Well, the Christian life that we would choose, that perfect Christian life, would keep us having everything that we want and need. And so that we would, we would see no reason to, to have to, to cling 
right tightly on to, to, to Christ and the cross for we would already have everything. And God knowing this, being all wise, then saves us. And when He saves us, He doesn't save us and say, okay, go ahead now, take a nap. But He, he sends us off to battle. Right? He sends us off to war. This is why then he, he brings trials and He brings them in abundance, doesn't He? Because maybe the first trial and the second trial and the third trial never got your attention. And so He brings you fourth trial and fifth trial and sixth trial until you see yourself as empty and unable. And you run and flee to Him for strength and mercy and grace being taught through those trials. Your need to call out to Him morning, noon, and night, daily, again and again and again in prayer for all that you need to get by. You see, the easy and light life that you and I would like for the true Christian would be a miserable one. It would be miserable because you wouldn't really understand the the infinite mercy of God. Right? It's, it's through the storms of life that you come to understand something about God's love for you. Right? It's in those trials and tribulations that you form a, a deep and more intimate relationship. Right? Father, Son, and Father, Daughter that God had designed for His people from the beginning. It's in those times, right, the hard times, that you see God's hand of protection over you in it. It's in those hard times, it's in those storms that we see God shaping peace in our hearts. It's in those times we see Him increasing our patience and causing our hearts to abound in love for God. Right? It's in those times, it's when you are weakest and when you are in most need that the majesty and the mightiness of God is, is most on display. And He is most glorified. And so that is the purpose for why God has made the Christian life to be how He has made it to be. This is why in, instead of, of making the Christian life like a, a cozy little nap, Paul tells us that He has made it like a race. And He's made it like a race. And in a difficult race, Right? A race that, that draws out of us, right? Blood, sweat, and tears. A, a race that has many obstacles. A race that Paul implies in verse 7 is one that perhaps not everyone will finish. Right? Isn't that true about, about races? That it's not those who enter the race, or it's not those who begin the race who receive the war, reward, but it's, it's only those who finish the race? Now, people might not like that. Nobody here. But outside of here, people might not like that, especially with the society that we are living in in which everyone ought to receive a reward. Right? We live in a society where everyone gets a participation trophy for trying. But that's not real life. And that's not the Christian life neither. Right? Those who finish the race and receive the reward are not going to be those who simply at one time confess Christ, or who have a certificate on their desk stamped by some pastor with the date and time of their new birth. Right? But rather, those who, who finish the race and receive the reward are those whose entire lives from their profession on 
are living testimonies of exactly who they are. It's these Gentile converts, though, who are in danger, we read, of although beginning the race, not finishing it. Right? They are those who at one time confess Christ, right? believe justification to be by faith alone in Christ, lived in that reality, but now are flirting with placing themselves back under the law and desiring to seek acceptance with God through it. And so Paul says to those who would, who would try to do something like that, that you are not running well. What's caused you to slow down? Perhaps stop or recognize the fact that you are not even on the track anymore. And so this is why Paul seeks to encourage those here to continue running by pointing their eyes back into the right direction. And it's what he's pointing their eyes towards in order that they might run the race well into the finish line that we want to look at in our text today. And so we're going to do that under three points this morning. Uh, The first point is eyes set forward. Eyes set forward. Second, eyes set on the cross. Eyes set on the cross. And third, eyes set lovingly upon one another. Eyes set lovingly upon one another. Now, I confess to you at the outset that I gave you all three points, but we're only going to get through point one this morning. Okay? Which means everyone has to come back next week to hear points two and three. So point one then, I set forward. Look with me at verse seven once more, please. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Right? And so in the beginning, what Paul says is, it at least appeared to him that they were true believers. It appeared to Paul that at some time they were. But now he expresses concern that perhaps in fact he was wrong. Perhaps in fact they never were. Perhaps they are not true racers running, but rather maybe they are, they are fake racers. Right? They, they are imposters on the track. Right? They initially embraced the gospel. They embraced all the doctrine that came along with it. They ran cheerfully in the freedom that they had in Christ, in holiness, but now the Judaizers have turned them aside from the Lord. Now what's interesting though is, is the words Paul uses here in verse 7. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? He doesn't say who hindered you from not believing rightly. Did you catch that? He says, Who hindered you from obeying the truth? You see, oftentimes there are people who we can recognize who put all of their hope in attaining that eternal reward in their own works, right? You ask them, you know, why do you think that you will be in heaven one day and they will point you to all the works that they have done? But the same is true of the other side as well. Right? There are other people who will solely tell you that the reason that, that they will be in glory with God is simply based on something they know intellectually. Right? There are people out there in the world who probably know their Bibles backwards and forwards and can run circles around maybe every one of us here. And yet, what does Paul say? Paul says this, that the Gospel is not just something that's going to bring you into right relationship with God. But the gospel, when it comes to us in power, 
you will know it because it's going to impact your lives. Right? So the gospel, when it comes to you in power, isn't just going to change what you know, but it's going to change what you do. It's going to change what you do. And a part of what the Christian does is we run the race. Listen to what the author to the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Right here we are told, though, why? When the Gospel comes to you in power, it just doesn't change your relationship with God, but it impacts our very lives. And why is that? Well, because Christ Himself is the author and the finisher of our faith. Right? He is the author and the, the perfecter of it. And so, you being in the race is not something that is attributed to something in you. Right? You're not in the race because of you. What does Paul say? He says the race has been set before you. Right? The race has been set before you. You don't fall into the race by chance then. You don't will yourself into the race, but the race is set before you. And who is the one who sets the race before every believer? It is Christ Jesus who then calls us to faith and obedience. And so He has ordered the whole course of the race. He has given us our duties along the way. He has called us to obedience. And in the Gospel, He doesn't hide the the nature of the race at all to any of us, does He? No, He makes it clear that, that in the race there are going to be many crosses that you are going to have to bear as you run this race. But this is also the believer's comfort though, isn't it? That the entire time that you and I are are in this race and the obedience that we are called to and the faith that we are called to is something that we know Christ has appointed us to. That He has called us to. And so He will equip us with those things that we need and never fail to supply them to His people. This is evident from Paul's letter to the Philippians, isn't it? That Paul believed this. In chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I am sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Later in chapter 2, verse 13, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Right? It's for that very reason then that Paul says in verse 8, This persuasion is not from Him who calls you. Which means what? That God doesn't work in opposition to His Word. Right? That, that God doesn't work in opposition to His plan. Right? And so for those whom Christ came and died, He will save to the uttermost. Right? For, for those who he, he died for, right? He, he died so that He might purify you so we would be zealous for good works. Right? He who laid down His life for the saints did so that we would walk in the works that God prepared beforehand that we should follow. And so He's not going to call us to, to purity and holiness of life. He's not going to call us to live under His grace and to trust in Him by faith and to live in His strength and then lead you to damnation. Right? God keeps us running by keeping us in His Word, by keeping us in sound doctrine, by keeping us in the Spirit, that we would walk according to the Spirit. And so He's not going to turn around and call you then to error or to 
false doctrine, which the Judaizers are now trying to teach. These whom He saved, he He has set up in the race then. He has a plan. That is that you run the race and that you run it well and that you make it to the end. And He equips His people to do that very thing. Right? By dressing you and clothing you in the righteousness of Christ. By indwelling you with the Holy Spirit. So that you might complete that mission that has been set before you. That you, like Paul, at the end of your life might say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Now, although this is God's plan for His people, there is another who has a, a different plan for God's people. Right? That is the devil. Right? Who works through means to achieve his goal of causing us to, to not run well. Or to not run altogether. This is what the devil had begun to do in Galatia using these Judaizing teachers. In verse 9 he says, A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now what does leaven do? Leaven causes uh, dough or batter to expand. And so if if you bake with leaven, your baked goods are going to increase in volume. It's going to cause them to expand. It's going to permeate it. Cause it to rise. And Paul uses this analogy then to caution these saints against allowing false teaching and false teachers into the church. But Satan is very cunning in his way, though, isn't he? As we said, I think, last week, Satan just doesn't come to you and offer you something that is altogether false because he knows that the believer will reject it. And so he comes to us and he brings us something that's orthodox, but he always mixes it with a little falsehood, doesn't he? This is what he's done in Galatia. He doesn't send the Judaizing teachers into the church to wholly destroy the Gospel, does he? No, he doesn't say what Paul's teaching you is altogether false. He says, no, what Paul's teaching you is true. You just need to add a little something else to it. But look at what just a little leaven does. Right? Look at what just a, a little bad doctrine does. It brings division in the church, doesn't it? It causes warring factions within the body. It brings schism. It leads souls from the gates of heaven down to the pits of hell. And it doesn't just stop at one bad doctrine, does it? No, bad doctrine begets bad doctrine, which begets bad doctrine. Remember last week we said how important it is to have right knowledge. right? To, to know the Bible well. Why? Because your doctrine drives your practice. Well, that is true of bad doctrine as well. Right? Bad doctrine is going to drive Bad practice and false practice. Ultimately, as that, as that bad doctrine continues to build, it's going to drive, right, worse and worse practice. Perhaps even gross sin. And just as a little leaven permeates all the dough, bad doctrine works in the same way, doesn't it? Usually bad doctrine doesn't start with the entire body of believers, does it? No, it starts with one, two, maybe a handful. And they begin to spread that doctrine and it infests right, a whole church until it reaches everybody. This is why whenever we are charged as confessionally re- reformed people of being too rigid in our doctrine, we ought not to see that as something negative. 
But rather, we ought to see that as something positive, a compliment to us. Right? We are to be biblically rigid, aren't we? In the sense that we are not, we are to hold on to biblical doctrine and allow for no substitutes. Right? In that sense, we, yes, we are to be biblically rigid. Because ultimately, why? Doctrine is not ours. Right? Doctrine is God's. It's, it's God's doctrine. And so we cannot change it. We cannot fix it. Right? We cannot do anything to it, even if we can't completely ourselves wrap our head around everything. And in fact, what the church is to do is to accept it. Right? We are to believe it. We are to protect it. We are to teach it and keep it and observe it and love it. Right? That is what the church is to do. Now, sure, there are areas in which we as believers are to be charitable with others who we don't agree with. But when it comes to matters of salvation, right, when a doctrine is going to cause you to, to lose Christ or, or overturn the Gospel, then to charity we say no. Right, we will not be charitable in those areas. Right, we will not right, shift at all, move one step backwards. But as we think about that, I wonder... What in our lives have we been charitable with that perhaps we ought not to be? And what I'm thinking in particular about is is how many of us as we sit here today have been very charitable with our sin. Right? That we allow sin opportunity in our lives. Not just allow it, but we, we give it our mind. We give it our heart. We give it our attention. Instead of striking it down immediately, putting it to death, taking that axe and laying it to the root of that sin that's in your heart. What sins in your life right now are not causing you to run well? Right, what, what maybe new doctrines have you, have you picked up recently that are not helping you in your Christian life, but but rather are, are hurting or harmful in your life. You see, brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, you are a runner in the race. The problem is, as, you, as we look out into the world, as we know our own hearts, right? the problem is, is that there aren't many who are proficient in running well, are there? We as Christians are to be considerate, aren't we? We are to be favorable and kind to others. But never to our sin. Right? Never to our sin. Even when the world tells you that it's okay. Right? But instead we need to mortify the deeds of the flesh. Right? We need to put to death everything that is earthly within us and, and put on all that Christ has won for us. Letting His Word dwell richly inside of us. But as you do know this, that the, that the world is going to try to confuse you in that. Right? The, the world is going to try to tell you that that all of these things that will keep you from finishing the race are acceptable for the Christian to do. But we must not listen. Right? Take, for example, something like pride. Right? The world today says pride is just confidence. It's just having confidence in yourself. That's a good thing, isn't it? Right? Take drunkenness. What does the world say? Well, drunkenness is just having fun with one another. There's nothing wrong with that. Just having a good time. Sexual sin. What, what do we say about that? That's just things, something that, that young people do. 
It's natural. They all do it, right? How about living a self-indulgent life? What, is the, what does the world say about that? All right, today, in our day and age, it's, it's taking care of your, of your mental health. Right? They want to make all these wicked things that will keep you from finishing the race something that is good and positive, something that we ought to, to pursue. But when we hear those things, brothers and sisters, every single one of us here ought to, ought to beg God to never allow those things to rise up again in our hearts. That we would beg God that, that He would give us discernment so that we would not be deceived. Right? That we would beg God that He would help us to hate everything and every thought that is not held captive to the Word of God. Right? That we would beg God that He would never allow these things to rise up in our hearts again. So that nothing would hinder us from from running the race and, and setting our eyes forward to the goal. And our confidence, though, to do so is not to be found in ourselves, is it? Every single one of us would allow our sin to destroy us again and again and again if it was up to us. But that's why the, the Christian's confidence is not in ourselves, but it's in the Lord, right? Who is our perfect Redeemer, right? Our confidence is in His power, that He will not allow the devil to have us. That He will not allow the world to make us their own again. That He will not allow sin to have dominion over our hearts. Right? Our confidence is in the efficacy of Christ's death. That it will do all that it was meant to do. That it reconcile us to God. That His death will make us like the Son. That He died that we would look like Him now. That He died that, that we might obey the will of the Father just as the Son did. Right? That He died so that we might live in eternal glory with God. That is where the believer's confidence lies. In Christ and Christ alone. For He is faithful and He is true. And isn't this where Paul's confidence lies as well? Right? Look at verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Paul is someone who is who's well acquainted with the promises of God, isn't he? Right? He's someone who, who knows quite well the power of God. Paul himself being a chief among sinners. Putting Christians to death. And now it is sinners who are coming after Paul to put him to death. And so it's that power. And it's those promises that, that Paul places his faith and trust into for these believers. Paul knows that if they are God's people, that they will return and they will run the, the race well. And that is because God will cause them to see the truth. And they will do so because Christ ultimately, right, if they are truly believers, is the author and the finisher of their faith who will never allow them to fall away. Right? Paul knows that everyone who belongs to the Lord, every one of His sheep will eventually hear His voice, even if for a time you wander away. But I also want us to see this in our text today. And that is, how Paul approaches winning these brothers back to Christ. Even though they are not running well, he does not assume their apostasy. And although they are not running well, he does not assume their apostasy. He doesn't say, you're not running well, leave me alone, you wicked unbeliever. He doesn't say, you're not running well, get out of the church. 
He doesn't say you're, you're not running well. I want nothing to do with you. No, Paul has a generous spirit with these brothers, doesn't he? One we oftentimes don't share. Right? When we say so and so did this, we need to discipline them. Right? So and so did that, we need to move to excommunicate them. So and so did this, we must disfellowship with them, have nothing to do with them. But Paul is a wonderful example of what a true shepherd is all about. Paul understands that, that how we engage those who are an heir in the church is vitally important. Right? Paul understands that how we engage those in heir is an important work of the gospel ministry. He knows that the spirit we engage people in should never be something that's an afterthought, but something that's a, at the forefront of our minds before we approach someone, open our mouths and speak. Someone's sin might anger us, but anger is not always the way to approach it. Especially if the goal is winning someone back to Christ. Look what Paul says just one chapter later. Chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. Also see this in our text, that Paul distinguishes between the deceivers and the deceived, doesn't he, in verse 10? And where does the brunt of Paul's anger lie? It's not with those who have been deceived, but with those who are doing the deceiving. It's to them that he says in verse 12, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. And there, what is he doing? He's just following the pattern of Christ, isn't he? Right, who likewise was far more angry with those who, who would seek to unsettle believers. Right, remember what Jesus says in, in Mark chapter 9, verse 42? Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in Me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now these little ones in that text, isn't, we're not talking about little children. We're talking about little ones in faith. New converts. Right? Those who are not fully mature. Right? And so we ought to have compassion and, and pity upon those in that state who are being deceived and do everything that we can right, to, to win them back to Christ, to, to turn them back to their Savior. Right? Our first in instinct when someone is an heir is not to say they are an unbeliever or that they are not a brother. The first instinct ought to be to teach them Right? To, to correct them in a spirit of gentleness and meekness, knowing that if they are the Lord's, He will bring them to repentance. He will bring them back to Himself. Right? Just as Christ loves the sheep and, and brings every one of them back that goes astray, so should the minister do. Right? So should the, the, the shepherd of God's flock do. We should not try to drive them away from their Savior, right? but turn them back to Him. But I think oftentimes our approach as we talk to people who are, are wandering off is, is one that, that has the opposite effect. Right? That does the very opposite thing that we want to be done. It's not to say that, that we are not to, to discipline ever or that there's not to be excommunication. Absolutely those things are. Right? But those things are a little further down the line. Right? We, we shouldn't try to make 
Last option is the first option. And I think that too often, that's what we try to do. But Scripture teaches us a different way. Right? When we don't abide by Scripture's teaching, when we seek to do things our own way, all we're doing is, is in fact putting greater obstacles in people's way to continue to run the race well. Right? In fact, that's what the Judaizers are guilty of, but, but maybe just in a different way. Right? They're putting obstacles on the racetrack so that these Gentile converts would not run forward and look forward, but rather look backwards. Right? That's what their teaching was doing. When Paul came, he preached the Gospel. And when he preached the Gospel, they learned to rest in Christ alone and His merits and to run in His strength and to, and to run forward looking for that upward call. But the Judaizers have come around and said, what? Stop! No! Right? You've missed something. You've got to go back. Right? Go back to the Old Covenant. Go back to the Mosaic Law, to ceremonies and, and rituals. If you want to run well, that's what you need to do. But that's not the, the course that Christ has put His people on. Right? He, put, he hasn't put us upon the, the racetrack of bondage, but of freedom. He didn't place us upon a, a racetrack that, that we are called to, to look at one another and see if we can outdo one another. Right, stack up our good works, but rather He has put us on the racetrack together with God-granted faith and God-granted power and He calls upon us to run well in it. And not for our own glory, but for His. It's a race, brothers and sisters, that we run only because Christ ran it first. And He ran it perfectly. And now He says, I've made the path right? run behind me. Christ has, has cleared all the trees out of the forest. He says, here you go. Right? Christ has done it all for us. Right? He has defeated sin, death, and the devil. And He says now, do you believe that I've done this for you? But let us always recognize though that, that God-granted faith that He gives us is not an inactive faith. It's a, it's a faith in motion. It's a, it's a faith in action. But it's also a God-induced action. Right? That's something we need to understand as well. And we need it to be God-induced action. We need it to be God in us because us in us wouldn't finish the race. Because to finish the race, it takes patience. It's a long race, isn't it? And for some, longer than others. It's a hard race. Right? It takes much, much strength. There are many temptations and many obstacles along the way. Right? Many things thrown upon the racetrack meant to distract us? Perhaps, though, if we saturated ourselves and our minds and our, our lives in the Word of God and with Christian things, we wouldn't be so easily distracted. Perhaps we'd be better prepared on the race. Right? What does Paul tell Timothy in chapter 2, or excuse me, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12? Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. And so when you are, there's never a reason to stop running or to turn around. But for many, that is. Many Christians don't run well because they spend so much time being tripped up by the obstacles. But if they were saturated in the Word of God, they would be prepared for those obstacles. And they would know where they are. They would know how to, how to navigate and how to get around them. I mean, think about it. How many Christians spend a whole lot of time questioning if they're even Christians? 
Perhaps some of you here today do that a lot. I know people I've spoken to outside of church, in other churches, in other areas in which I've, I've spoken with them, and, and they're always preoccupied with that question. And then you talk to them, you want to know why, and then you say to them, stop it. There's no need to continue to... to if this is your issue, there's no reason to, to continue to question it. That's what the devil wants you to do. He wants you to be preoccupied with all of these other things so that you would not run well. He wants you to be distracted with new doctrine that's arisen that leads you backwards. He wants to distract you with the world that will lead you backwards into the world. Right? He wants you to grow tired of the race and tired of the difficulty. And He wants you to say, should I even be in the race anymore? I mean, I'm bad. I'm a sinner. Is this race even for me? Right? But even there, don't you see that the devil mixes truth with lies? We are bad. Right? You are bad. I am bad. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. But that is the reason that we need to be in the race. Right? Because God has revealed that to us. We have confessed it, but we also believe that Christ died for that sin. There will be stumbles for us all, brothers and sisters. You can be assured of it. None of us are perfect. But when you fall, when you stumble, the way to go is not backwards, but rather it's to go forwards. We are to run and continue running, looking at that, that tape that's, around, that's, that's uh, along that finish line. And we are to run and run and run until you burst through that tape. Right? This is what Christ has called you for. He knew you wouldn't run perfectly. But He grants you faith. Right? He gives you His Spirit. He tells you to obey. He gives you hearts that now want to. And He powerfully works in you that you might do that very thing. So we must not ask the question, am I running perfectly? Because the answer for every one of us is no. We probably shouldn't even ask, because we ought to already know the answer, can I run better? Right? Because the answer for every one of us is yes. The question we ought to ask is, am I even in the race? Right? Am I even running? Well, do you believe in Christ? Right? Do you believe in Him? Has, has His faith that you have received come to you in power and not just in word? A testimony is useless if it has no power behind it. And so, brothers and sisters, the question is, has the Gospel impacted you savingly? Right? Has it changed what you know? Has it changed what you believe? Does it change how you speak, how you think, how you act, how, how, you, how you move around in this world? If the answer is yes, then I implore you, don't look back. Right? Don't look back. Set your eyes forward. Yes, right? when you sin, cry out in repentance. Right? Seeking the forgiveness of God. And continue to ask God that He would grant you more strength to make you a more proficient runner. But part of that is, is, is you doing what God has called you to do, which is sitting under the Word. Right? Which is meditating upon His Word. Which is being active in prayer and in the means of grace and in learning right doctrine. But then being diligent and making use of that doctrine that you have learned. But ultimately, the devil is looking to stop that forward progress. And so I say to every single one of you here today, do not give the devil your ear even for a second. Right? He wants to knock you off that path. He wants you to stop running. But you must never stop running. You must continue to run and run with eyes forward, looking for what 
lays awaiting you beyond that heavenly horizon. Right? Which is ultimately the thing we ought to want more than anything. And that's to see the face of Christ who is waiting there for us. And so let us allow nothing ever to stand in our way. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. Uh, It is so true and it is so good to the soul as it reveals so many things to us. It reveals the areas of our great weakness and of our need. It reveals to us our sin. And it also reveals to us uh, Your precious promises and the privileges we have as Your people. And so, Lord, we pray that Your Word would do a powerful work in us this day. Uh, That Your Word comes to us not just in, in spoken Word, but in power. That Your Word would have a great effect upon the lives of Your people. That it would not be something that we just sit with in our minds, but that it causes us to to act differently. That it transforms us, not just in what we think, but in what we do. Uh, Father, we pray and ask for forgiveness uh, for our utter inaction at times. We we pray and ask for forgiveness for for too often looking behind us and backward and, and stumbling and falling through giving sin so much opportunity in our lives. And Lord, we pray. Uh, that You would help us to set our eyes in a forward direction and that You would keep our eyes looking to Christ and heaven, uh, for that is what You have made us to to be, to to be runners who run and who are fashioned now in this day and age uh, for the age to come that we might enjoy uh, eternal glory with You forever. And so, Lord, we come before You and we ask these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen.